Hello, and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements Author in the Room conference call. My name is Pamela, and I'll be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question-and-answer session, and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon, a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and a practicing internist. Dr. Kylo, you may go ahead, sir. Thank you, Pamela, and welcome, everybody. Greetings once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We're delighted that you could join us today. My name is Dr. Chuck Kylo, and I'll be your moderator for today's call. We're delighted that you could join us. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call being on Wednesday, October 15th. Uh, the article for that call will be Prevalence of Symptomatic Pelvic Floor Disorders in U.S. Women, uh, with the lead author being Dr. Ingrid Nygaard, uh, published in the September 17th issue of JAMA. So we look forward to you joining us on that call. Today, our featured author is Dr. George Nuremberg. We're delighted to have Dr. Nuremberg join us today. Uh, Dr. Nuremberg's article, Zildenafil, Treatment of Women with Antidepressant-Associated Sexual Dysfunction, was published in the July 23rd uh, uh, issue of JAMA. Welcome, Dr. Nuremberg. Thank you. Dr. Nuremberg is a professor of psychiatry and the executive vice chair and director of clinical research in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of New Mexico Health Sciences Center and School of Medicine. He has served as principal investigator for numerous studies on depression, anxiety, personality disorders, Alzheimer's disease, and other topics. And we are, again, delighted to have Dr. Nuremberg uh, with us today. Dr. Um, again, one purpose of Author in the Room is here directly from the author. Dr. Nuremberg will provide an overview of his article uh, in just a minute. Uh, and after that, we will discuss uh, your experiences and this topic area of uh, treatment of sexual dysfunction in women with anti, uh, on antidepressants. And we will talk about Dr. Nuremberg's uh, studies and the implications of it. At this point, I'd like to uh, turn to Dr. Nuremberg, and he will provide approximately a 10-minute overview of the article. Dr. Nuremberg. Uh, thank you very much. Um, Maybe for a little context, what I'll, I'll start with is really the issue of that uh, in 1998, which was really when the first PDE5 inhibitors uh, were released, there was a great deal of attention uh, towards the issue of treating sexual dysfunction and that uh, there seemed to be for the first time an oral medication that was available uh, to men with erectile dysfunction. Uh, what was interesting about the uh, release of this, uh, sildenafil was the first, and then we've had two other compounds, uh, tadalafil and vardenafil, to follow. What was particularly interesting to us in terms of um, this new development was that actually uh, these compounds were based 
on using nitric oxide and implementing nitric oxide uh, in its role as endothelial relaxing factor, and that by bringing increased blood flow uh, treatment effects that would be beneficial to patients with erectile dysfunction uh, uh, could be derived from that. So we had a novel mechanism dealing with uh, uh, novel signaling techniques uh, to treat what up to that point in time was a condition that there were very few treatments for that really had any demonstrated effectiveness. We became interested in that uh, from the point of view of uh, antidepressant sexual dysfunction, particularly SSRI sexual dysfunction. I think what made it particularly relevant is that SSRI sexual dysfunction may well be sort of a uh, a prototype of, of one of the problems that we're seeing now in, in terms of medicine, the importance of side effects in terms of health care outcomes that while so much of uh, research is focused on efficacy, I think we're now beginning to see more and more that what our patients need is uh, drugs that are effective. So having medications that work for the primary disorder but that cause side effects that make people prematurely discontinue their medication becomes a severe impairment uh, to being able to uh, manage patients effectively. And that what we see and what has been surprising to people is that where antidepressants have become one of the most frequently prescribed medications uh, as a group for uh, patients from ages of 20 to 60 or so, um, aside from the fact that there's maybe 30 million people with major depression, that uh, anxiety disorders are treated with these medications and other conditions, uh, people have become very familiar with the fact that while these new at that time SSRIs uh, were popular and effective antidepressants, it turns out that within about 30 to uh, 60 days, more than half of patients are off their medication. Uh, patients who discontinue their medication, and I say in that sense, major depression is also a good model for uh, looking at how we treat uh, chronic medical conditions where people need to be treated for an acute phase, but then one of the essential treatments is being able to maintain patients in remission and prevent recurrences. Uh, one cannot prevent remissions and recurrences in patients who prematurely discontinue their medications. The patients then relapse and uh, additional problems and disability emanates from that. So we thought, would it be possible to treat uh, SSRI sexual dysfunction with uh, PDE5 inhibitors? Now, the reason that we were looking for that was many, many strategies uh, have already been proposed in about 40 years of use of antidepressants for treating antidepressant sexual dysfunction. People have talked about antidote medications. I think just about every one of us in medical school at some point in time had learned about Yohimbin as possibly being a treatment for sexual dysfunction, switching antidepressant medications if the patient uh, develops sexual dysfunction and onto another antidepressant, adding other antidepressants. There was a whole marketing thrust from one of the uh, antidepressants, uh, bupropion, actually based much of its marketing on the fact that this is an antidepressant that could be added or substituted for an SSRI uh, to deal with uh, antidepressant sexual dysfunction, avoidance, drug holidays, so many, many strategies. And there's literally thousands of articles um, and in the form of review articles, et cetera, that talk about this. 
What was really shocking to us was that when we reviewed the literature uh, out of these thousands of open-label and anecdotal reports, there were probably less than 30 double-blind placebo-controlled trials that tested any of these modalities, uh, things like bupropion or switching, and et cetera. When one looked at the few trials that there were, uh, actually until about 2000, there wasn't even a single double-blind placebo-controlled trial of Yohimbin conducted. When we reviewed the literature and looked at all of the trials that were out there, there was not a single one of these uh, treatments that was able to show in randomized cl clinical trial uh, significant clinically meaningful efficacy for treatment of SSRI sexual dysfunction. Uh, so that gave us further impetus to try the PDE5 inhibitors. With the early trials uh, of sildenafil that came out, and this was actually one of our first papers back in 1999 or 2000, uh, the pivotal trials that looked at sildenafil among various causes of erectile dysfunction, which included depression, cardiovascular disease, et cetera, and all the things that people are familiar with, prostatectomy patients, diabetes. What we noticed was in all of those trials, when one looked at the data, besides there being a highly significant effect over placebo in treating erectile function, there also was a significant effect for orgasm function. So orgasm function also improved in those trials. And we thought that was a particularly interesting signal because what we also, uh, as many of you know, that one of the hallmarks of SSRI sexual dysfunction is actually complaints of problems with orgasm, particularly orgasm delay. And that orgasm delay very likely, we thought, could be a cause of the erectile dysfunction. So after doing an analysis of the data and finding in those trials of maybe 3,000 patients, there were probably 120 patients who were on SSRIs in the original pivotal trials, we pulled those patients out with it, and indeed they also had significant improvement in orgasm delay uh, in addition to their difficulties with erectile function. So that was a retrospective study, and then what we did was, and that was really our first study that was published in JAMA in 2003, uh, we did a trial of sildenafil for treatment of SSRI sexual dysfunction in men, um, and that trial used the standard criteria, very similar in protocol. In fact, the protocol of the female study that we did uh, was modeled right after that, so we would have some comparability in terms of looking at the trials. And indeed, what we showed was that in the men who had SSRI sexual dysfunction, when they were put on sildenafil, uh, they improved significantly in erectile function, orgasm delay, et cetera. The critical issue now came, now that we had this finding in men, was could one extend this trial to women? The importance of uh, seeing whether this could work in women was, as many of you know, there was a lot of interest in whether PD-5 inhibitors would work in women. And it was in about 2003, 2004, the pharmaceutical companies actually announced that they were abandoning pursuit of an indication for treatment of female sexual arousal disorder, which they thought was comparable to rectal dysfunction, and didn't... Uh, didn't want to pursue it any further. We were already underway in terms of designing our protocol and trying to uh, do the same trials in women because we also felt that what was different in terms of antidepressant sexual dysfunction was that uh, major depression has about twice as many women. It's about a two-to-one ratio of women to men uh, who have the disorder, and clearly these are the people who are also most heavily prescribed SSRIs. 
So if we thought we would have an effective treatment for antidepressant sexual dysfunction, uh, the goal was really to see whether it would also work in women comparable to men. Again, in the protocol, what we looked for, and I think this would be one of the clinical issues that came forward, we wanted to make sure we were treating SSRI sexual dysfunction and not some other form of sexual dysfunction that might come in. So we looked for women who had had depression, whose depression had been treated to remission with antidepressants, were now on a stable dose. This would be the maintenance dose that they would be on for the next year or so, and who had developed SSRI sexual dysfunction. It was important that we ruled out that there was no pre-existing sexual dysfunction before they got depressed or got were put on medication because we didn't want to uh, confound those results. And that was basically the the study group that went forward. No pre-existing sexual dysfunction now had sexual dysfunction. Depression was now in remission. Uh, so they had been treated effectively for their depression, and now we're suffering from persisting uh, SSRI sexual dysfunction. And that's the group of patients that we tried to treat in the paper. Uh, we had 100 patients, randomized them to sildenafil or placebo. Uh, they were to take the medication uh, uh, two hours or so before anticipated sexual function. And... Um, so it was on a PRN basis, and people started with 50 milligrams. If the 50 milligrams didn't work, then uh, after a couple of visits, they could be increased to 100 milligrams. So, again, same dosing as we had used in the male study, and essentially that was the study. Uh, when we analyzed the data, um, as you might have seen in the journal article, there was significant effect in overall sexual function. Uh, in the sildenafil group compared to the placebo group. And also what was interesting for us was that uh, orgasm delay was really the significant domain function that, that showed clear improvement in this statistically in what we felt clinically meaningful manner. So we were able to demonstrate essentially the equivalent, uh, com uh, equivalently comparable results to what uh, we had found in the men. Uh, one extra uh, issue with the female study that was not in the male study was that because there had been so much discussion about the role of hormones in female sexual dysfunction, we also took hormone levels uh, in our patients really from the point of view of trying to ascertain whether there was a difference in hormones that might account for the difference in overall results. And what we actually found, which was quite interesting, that it was basically the patients all had hormone levels within normal range, and that uh, with treatment, uh, hormone levels essentially stayed in the same range. And so, therefore, uh, we concluded really that it was not hormones that were a uh, confounding factor in our treatment results, but it did show that of the women who responded compared to the women who didn't respond to treatment, irregardless of whether they were on drug or on placebo, um, that the women who were responders had somewhat higher testosterone levels within normal limits for both groups and had higher uh, thyroid hormone levels. And so essentially what we were able to show now was that uh, this study fairly well replicated what we had found in the men. And uh, I think that uh, what we really do now have is in, in, in comparison to uh, other studies, both in men and women, it really does appear the PDE5 inhibitors seem to be the first group of agents that have clearly shown an evidence base 
manner with randomized clinical trials that they can be effective for treating uh, SSRI sexual dysfunction. Uh, and that's it. So I think we can throw that open for questions. Okay, very good. For those of you who have a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone phone, and your questions will be answered in the order that they are received. Pam, if you are Yes, sir. Okay, go ahead. Uh, go ahead and finish that, and then I just have a few more things I want to say before we we get people in the queue. Okay, excellent, sir. Uh, if, go ahead and finish your instructions. Okay. No, yeah. If you are using a speakerphone, you must pick up your handset before pressing star 1 to register for a question. If at any time your question has already been answered, please press star 2 to remove yourself from the question lineup. Please go ahead, Dr. Kylo. Great. Thanks, Pamela. I really appreciate it. We, we do want to thank you, Dr. Nurberg, for the overview. We do want to stress how important uh, you, the participants, um, your experiences are in these calls. Um, this is time to get uh, clarification from Dr. Nuremberg on the article itself or on the topic matter in general. So please bring your questions and your experiences in this regard uh, to Dr. Nuremberg, and uh, that will help it be a more robust conversation. Uh, one note, uh, the call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as streaming video or, pod, or streaming audio or podcast. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org and prior author in the room calls are also available on those sites. <clears throat> Lastly, there may be members of the press who are present on the call on a background basis only. So now we want to turn to what the research suggests about changes in clinical practice, changes that clinicians can make uh, in this area. And uh, we want to, again, talk about your experiences and address your questions in this regard. So now we will turn to your questions, as Pamela has instructed. You can hit star one to get in the queue and we will proceed. So, uh, George, I'll go ahead and get things started uh, sure. here. Um, and uh, I think it's a, a great article, and it, uh, it uh, alludes to a much bigger issue, as you talked about in your introduction, about, uh, I hate the word compliance, but we all know what it means, about compliance with antidepressant, antidepressant uh, management uh, uh, in general, but since sexual dysfunction is one critical reason that women stop taking their antidepressants. In general, can you just outline the, the, the various strategies that are currently used uh, for management of antidepressant-associated sexual dysfunction, and just a brief overview of the literature that substantiates that, or maybe the lack of literature that substantiates that? Yeah. Um, it, it really has been more of a, a, a lack of evidence-based literature, that, but most of the reports have really been uh, open-label reports, clinical vignettes, case reports, and such. Um, what I was trying to say is that really if one breaks it down into groupings, there's this antidote approach. The antidote approach has really relied on using agents that are either, for instance, serotonin agonists or antagonists or partial agonists. And I think some people who are familiar with it will have heard of ciproheptidine, for instance, is a 5-HT antagonist, uh, myanserin, granicitron, buspirone, uh, those kinds of compounds. Then there's also been the look of non-serotonergic agents, and that's gone to things like amantadine, which are dopaminergic agents, uh, even using ginkgo biloba, which is uh, an herbal, which is thought to have some nitric oxide precursor uh, capacity, uh, methylphenidate stimulants like amphetamines. Um, and then even some newer approaches have been things like uh, tianeptin, which is a presynaptic serotonin uh, uptake uh, 
increasing agent, uh, ropranol, the, the compound now that's being used for restless leg syndrome because that has T2 uh, dopamine agonism. So it, it's, it's been this whole uh, grouping. I, I think what's important about the grouping, the grouping sort of comes out of this approach, comes out of sort of a reverse um, induction theory, thinking that people and, and the prevailing hypothesis there was something wrong with uh, depressed, depression was somehow related to a serotonin problem, and that serotonin is an inhibitor of sexual function, and therefore to try to come in with agents that would affect receptors that would change serotonergic tone and decrease the serotonergic inhibition might be agents that uh, would work. And as I said, there have been many trials of those, um, and none of them really have uh, shown anything that, that's quite uh, substantial uh, in that regard. The other approach is an augmentation approach, which is similar, I mean, which takes from the antidote approach, and they, that uses a compound, and I think probably the best known of these is bupropion. Uh, bupropion is the one of the newer second-generation antidepressants that does not have a serotonergic action, and it is reputed that it works through dopaminergic and noradrenergic, uh, norepinephrine uh, uh, modalities. That has been very, very highly promoted, uh, both by the company and in uh, reports at different meetings. What's interesting about it, while that's probably the most commonly used technique by psychiatrists now, is to take a patient who is on an SSRI and responding well, is to add some bupropion uh, to it. And that would be the augmentation approach as opposed to um, uh, switching them off. In a way, they're sort of in regard because one of the problems that comes up certainly in managed care environments is if you switch the patient to bupropion, uh, if you augment with bupropion and it works, then the problem is now you have a patient on two antidepressants and somebody might say, well, why do you have to have a patient on two if one would work enough? And there's sort of the implication, well, then you take them off the SSRI and leave them on the bupropion. There have actually been four industry-sponsored studies for bupropion up to high dose to add on. And Actually, none of them have, have had any significant, statistically significant, clinically meaningful effect. There was one high-dose study that was done in women, um, and actually that study is interesting because what it showed was there was a slight increase in libido, but there was no statistically significant effect on either uh, arousal, you know, lubrication, or orgasm factor. So um, the bupropion studies, while, while highly promoted, really still lack any kind of evidence. Space. So, other than those theories, I think one other theory that that of these approaches that might be considered, and there is one study to really show that, which uh, Dr. Harry Croft did, and he's one of the co-authors on this, was actually if you started patients at the beginning of depression treatment and put them on bupropion instead of an SSRI, there might be somewhat less of an orgasm delay effect in those patients. But it's not zero, and there was a difference. So you could avoid. So I say of those techniques, antidote, augmentation, avoidance, there is a little bit of something to say to avoid. But then again, one has to think about a different set of side effects that might come across with a non-SSRI antidepressant. And then probably the last grouping is perhaps a non less pharmacological approach. And that has been basically, if one wanted to summarize that, there have been things like calling adaptation perhaps. One is 
uh, putting patients on a drug holiday. So there, there was uh, a report that suggested, well, patients could stop taking their antidepressant on Thursday, if, let's say if they wanted to have sex on Sunday, and uh, go off the drug for a couple of days, have a sexual experience, and then go back on their antidepressant. I mean, that has some obvious implications. One is your math has to be pretty good for your timing, and the other has to do with, and I think that became more of a concern, was in a certain way that encourages noncompliance uh, and non-adherence to medication. Uh, another approach might be to adjust the dosage, and that would be to lower the dose of the SSRI. Now, again, that, that could happen. That could be helpful because SSRI sexual dysfunction is dose-related. Uh, the problem might be, though, one might lower the dose to a sub-therapeutic level, and then that might be a problem. Another approach has been just to wait for it to go away, and there's about 10 to 15 percent of patients who probably have spontaneous remissions or adaptations uh, if one wanted to do that. So those have been the basic strategies. And I think what's particularly interesting about this is that this is probably, I think, one of the strongest uh, examples of where really opinion-based medicine has dominated, and um, now it's time for us to really start accumulating some evidence to be able to empirically support the different types of approaches. And I think, uh, I mean, some people might say, well, there might have been signals of some of these other approaches, and that may be true, and I think we have to wait for studies there. I would assume that it's the most common approach right now, just in general practice, is to switch to a different SSRI. Yes, and I, I think that uh, that's a great point that you bring up because I think there's a real hazard. See, I think, um, I mean, what what clinical practice is about is cause benefit, and I think everything has a potential, and one has to put that into the equation, which doesn't mean one doesn't have to do it. The problem with switching is. Because people have felt there was no specific indicator for a particular antidepressant to put someone on, you would try one. And that was sort of the old rubric. Try one. If it doesn't work, put them on another one. And then that one will work. And that will all work about 60 to 70% of the time. People have taken that information to conclude that the drugs are interchangeable. It actually proves that the drugs are not interchangeable. So, yes, you might get a patient better by switching. But you also have to consider the potential that you may now be switching to the patient to the first antidepressant that wouldn't have worked. So one might be switching a patient from the antidepressant to a drug that they might not have been responsive to in the, in, in the first place. And that has a certain risk uh, as well. Right. So there one, I think, has to start to balance is, and I think that's in a certain way where I kind of lean to a kind of a good antidote approach, having trained in medicine before I went into psychiatry. Um, I, I think when you get a patient responding well to their primary condition, which is really a potentially serious condition, um, and you finally find a drug that works because now we're inundated with all these different classes of drugs. I mean, there's very few things we treat that we're not constantly being suggested different types of drugs for. Um, this, the interchangeability of the drugs may not be that clear. And so, again, that, that would be something to keep in mind. So one might be switching the patient off a drug that's working well for them to treat a side effect. Then you're sort of throwing out the baby for the bathwater. Right, right. Uh, um, the point, though, I, I think would stress it all is it, it's really not an issue of saying there's one treatment. There's certainly a different approaches, and I think they have to be matched to the patient's 
needs and lifestyle and what they want to do. I think what's important to bring forward here, which I think is good in your question, is that this is something physicians should be aware of so that they can offer their patients some options. And patients could make choices within those options. I think it's incumbent on the doctor to be able to have some sort of empirical evidence available to tell the patients what the different chances of different kinds of approaches are for working. And I think they can discuss that together. Because I think what we've also seen is the biggest problem with, with, with particularly sexual side effects, and that's in treating hypertension and cardiovascular disease, is patients are not comfortable talking about this to their doctors. And it seems that doctors aren't comfortable asking about it or listening for it. And so much of this happens by people voting with their feet, the people just stop taking their medication disappearing. So what again what I would bring forward and which 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 you're saying in your question is the doctor should say, here's a medication I'm gonna try to if you get side effects, don't stop the medication. Tell me about it and we can sit down together and come up with some options for you. Great. All right, super. Uh Pamela Yes, sir. We do have a question and it comes from the office of Pfizer. Please proceed with your question or comment. If you can just give us your name as you do, that would be great also. Yes, hi. This is Gary Comstock. I'm a Pfizer medical uh, director. Uh, Dr. Nuremberg, I'm just wondering, I see the trial took place over a three-year period. Uh, did you have trouble enrolling patients for the trial? And the second question I have is, do you have any data on adherence of the SSRI in this study? Hey, Gary, why would you ask about uh, the enrollment issue? Well, I'm just wondering if, if this is such a prevalent condition, uh, if, if enrollment took three years or more, I'm just wondering if enrollment was difficult, why was the case? Well, enrollment was that difficult. I mean, it's uh, actually, uh, you said you're from Pfizer, is that correct? Yes. Okay, <laughs> you guys were sponsors for this independent study. Um, Part of the study, which I think will come out later, which we had also done with the male study, was uh, the goal of the study was to have patients in for eight weeks on double-blind placebo-controlled treatment. Um, what we were very much interested in, which I think your question is also directed to, was at the end of the double-blind placebo-controlled trial, they had a three-week washout where they went off everything, and then they were ran. Uh, then they were all assigned independent of breaking the blind, of active drug for another eight weeks. So everybody in the continuation phase went for another eight weeks of treatment um, to be able to um, really assess, you know, how many of the placebo patients then who had formerly been on placebo caught up and what kind of maintenance could we get. So the trial actually went uh, much longer. So it was really a 19-week uh, trial. Uh, from beginning to end, so we actually had a lot of patients in the uh, in, in in the continuation phase. So that was part of it. In terms of recruitment per se, um, it actually I mean for these types of studies it was a significant size study. I mean I said moderate, it wasn't large, but it certainly wasn't small. Um, recruitment we had to be very careful, and I think you see by the criteria, a is patients could not have any pre-existing sexual dysfunction. So we were, and very much like you pick up in lots of depression studies and other kinds of things, people have lots of comorbidities. Um, so really getting a group of patients who really had a, a pure, what we 
would feel, at least heuristically, was a very straightforward SSRI sexual dysfunction meant their depression had had to have been uh, treated to remission. They had to be healthy, couldn't be on other you know, medications, have other comorbid difficulties. Had to also be a group of, of women who were uh, not uh, planning to have children during the period of the study, and et cetera, and those kinds of things. So um, all in all, it, 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 the recruitment wasn't difficult per se, because what we really had was lots and lots of inquiries. Um, also, we were doing it basically in six centers and uh, different places, and, and it really wasn't done as a as a major, you know, pharmaceutical industry type sponsor study where you get a lot more active recruitment. The sort of recruitment was done locally by each site, and I think it would get, actually one of the nice parts of the study was that Pfizer really had no role in this at all other than basically funding us and so on. So I wouldn't say the study, um, the recruitment was particularly difficult. I think it was really more difficult to be able to get uh, the specific kind of SSRI sexual dysfunction that wasn't confounded by other potential variables. So because again, it was, you know, when we look at the data on people who are depressed, I mean, virtually only about 30% of patients with depression really get treated to remission and are able to maintain that. Uh, very few patients continue for a full year. Uh, so it's hard to get, you know, really patients in remission on stable dose, you know, staying there. So I think uh, I hope that answers it in some way for you. Yes, and just to follow on to that, did you uh, generate any data on adherence of their SSRIs in these? Well, yes, in the sense that it was one of the protocol criteria. I'm glad you bring that up. People had to be on a stable dose of SSRI and maintain that throughout the study. So the, the study actually required adherence. So both groups? Yes, because if, if they would have been able to go off the SSRI, their, their sexual dysfunction would have gone away. I mean, this is a very clear drug-induced side effect when you stop the medication. As I had mentioned in the, you know, sort of those uh, drug holiday approaches, the sexual function comes right back. So we actually, adherence was the requirement, was a protocol requirement. Anybody who's changed dose or stopped uh, would have to go out of the study. Okay. Thanks very much. Sure. Good, really good questions. Appreciate that, Gary. And you bring up a couple of other things for me, uh, uh, George. One is, um, you know, it's not uncommon for us to have people on SSR, SSRIs for too long mm -hmm. be, beyond what would be considered effective to that a, a trial of a taper once somebody is effectively treated uh, is is worth doing. And I frequently, as we get new patients, they've been on SSRIs for years and nobody's ever tried to taper them off. Right. So th thoughts on that? Well, I mean, there is. There's a lot of discussion on that. Um, the discussion on that is that basically all of the psychiatric guidelines say that once uh, a, a patient who has had uh, depression and is treated effectively, they should be on at least six to nine months of maintenance treatment before taking them off. So that would be the case for, for one. Uh, for the first episode. So there people should be on for six months. One of the reasons for that is the, um, and there's decent data showing that people who come off their medication have uh, two to three times the risk of, of relapse and recurrence if they prematurely discontinue. So there is a data that suggests at, at least six to nine months uh, for the first episode. Patients who've had more than one episode, that becomes 
more problematic. I mean, so there are recommendations that people who've had more than one episode um, really may need to be on it for life. So let's say somebody's had two or three episodes. One of the issues I think has to be kept in mind with major depression is this is an illness that gets worse as you get older. Um, so that people, let's say a person has their first depressive episode mid-20s, um, they may go to age 35 or 40 before they have their next episode. Um, so episode two might be you know, very significantly distance, and I think you bring up, should somebody then have to be on for 15 years of drug, and that, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but then when depression happens again in middle age, um, and then those episodes start coming quicker. And so as you get into patients who are older, who've had multiple episodes, these are the patients who are likely to need to stay on. Uh, the younger person who's had, you know, one episode or so, who's been treated effectively, that's a good patient to try to taper off in an appropriate kind of way because they may well go another 10 or 15 years before they have another episode. So um, that's really the, the balance issue, I think, that, yeah. Very helpful. Pamela? Once again, for those of you who have a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone phone. Or certainly if you have experiences that you'd like to share. And if there's nobody in the queue at this time, George, the other thing that I would ask would be, I think one of the things that you didn't mention would be just the the data on the value of exercise as a primary treatment for depression. And uh, and secondly, the data on exercise to help to counteract the uh, sexual dysfunction effects of the SSRIs. Oh, well, yeah. Um, I mean, exercise in terms of, I, I think what we're, well, uh, to, to really underscore, bonafide major depression. And I think that becomes the, the issue of where um, it depends on where you're, where you're viewing patients, whether you're viewing patients in a tertiary setting of, let's say, you know, psychiatrist in a specialty practice or in the primary care area where one is seeing patients. And sorry, patients who meet criteria for major depression, I think at this point, and I mean, with all of the evidence and all of the data out there, this is a serious medical disorder that needs to be treated, and it needs to be treated pharmacologically. Um, where sort of the cutoff points come to, to some extent, where the data would show is what's the severity of the depression. So for a severe depression, ham scores, however one wants to assess that, I mean, certainly suicidal ideation, things like that. Severe depression really needs to be very aggressively treated with antidepressants, and there really, I don't think, is any legitimate substitute for it. I, I think we went through a lot of this sort of as the paradigm shifted from the psychoanalytic, psychodynamic paradigm in psychiatry to a more biologically based one. I mean, there literally were uh, malpractice cases that were settled around the issue that, for instance, psychoanalysis could not substitute for drug treatment. Right. Um, so in a severely ill-depressed patient, absolutely should be on uh, antidepressants. Then when you start getting into the milder depressions, um, Though there is now some very reasonable data, even things like cognitive behavioral therapy and psychosocial treatments, you know, things like you know, being active, uh, even in cognitive behavioral and interpersonal therapy. So, so different kinds of talking therapies, um, as well as, and I think part of the part of the issue that you're bringing up, there, things like exercising. Um, 
attacking the somatic symptoms of depression in an effective way can be very helpful. Uh, I think what you what you bring into is in, into the, the questions. This was done in one of the male studies. It was actually a study done in, in France. It was the uh, opposite way around. Stuart Seidman did a study on these were men with erectile dysfunction, for instance, who had come into urology clinics who were depressed. I mean, these were people who had significant depression, ham scores of 17, 18. Um, which would be considered a moderate depression. Um, those men, when their erectile dysfunction was treated effectively, in this case with, with sildenafil, not sildenafil being an antidepressant, when their erectile dysfunction got better, their depression got significantly better. So treating depression secondary to, you know, or in, in association with other kinds of things can, by treating the primary disorder, can also have a significant impact and effect on, on depression. So um, yeah, things like exercise, focusing, commitments, and things like that all, um, do have a role, and I think the, 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 the covariate to what, what you're asking is also um, to simply take a, a patient who's depressed, um, whether it's in a primary care setting or, or whatever, and just put them on medication without the other issues, you know, things like exercise, taking care of themselves, who are they talking to, what are their relationships like, what are they doing with their life in terms of coming up with interests. And, uh, um, medication alone uh, is not effective either. So I think it's it's really treating the whole patient again. Great. Very, very helpful. All right, Pamela, anybody else in the queue? Not at this time, sir. Okay. And for others out there, we'd, we'd love to know your experience of how you manage this issue of the antidepressant-associated sexual dysfunction, be it with sildenafil or uh, otherwise. It would be helpful for us to, to hear that. Um, and so, uh, George, if you're giving us advice right now, um, thinking about this, our system of depression care, mm -hmm. uh, in particular in the primary care practice, um, we're starting – Obviously, women, as, as you've stated, we're starting women on SSRIs uh, day in and day out, obviously. Right. Um, uh, I'm assuming that you would recommend that we have some follow-up contact with them uh, several weeks down the road, be it by phone or in a secondary visit. Mm -hmm. uh, we ought to ask them specifically about their sexual, uh, the sexual side effects. And then if they are, uh, what would you recommend we do? Um, well, yeah, I think you bring up something really important, and I think we have to stress it here like we stress it in the paper. Um, this is not an FDA-approved indication. So um, PD-5 inhibitors, sildenafil, tadalafil, vardenafil are not FDA-approved for use of women. Um, the pharmaceutical companies, uh, Pfizer and the others, really stopped pursuing that indication when they found that their studies in uh, female sexual arousal disorders was their first target weren't effective. So right to begin with, I think the physician needs to know is that when it, it really depends now on the physician's comfort level uh, with non-FDA-approved use. It also will bring up some other uh, clinical issues that, that that we've run into here and in other places too. Is uh, people in different uh, managed care plans, um, there will be questions of what kind of coverage they have um, and whether the whether that will be supported by that that kind of issue. So 
those are issues. Then we still want to get back to the to the fundamental issues that every physician is aware of now or should be aware of with PDE5 inhibitors is really what other kinds of comorbid issues are. Certainly patients who are same as in men um, who would be on nitrates um, certainly contraindicated the same way. Um, so that would be an issue. So. I mean, taking care of those issues, I think that that's why, again, it, it, it would become important, and I think it helps in terms of the therapeutic relationship anyway with the patient, is the physician needs to share those issues with the patient, uh, and that one can then offer the patient the different kinds of options of what they might be particularly comfortable with in terms of picking out um, a, a treatment option if if this if they are having uh, sexual dysfunction. Now, once the sexual dysfunction comes, and I think there's a similar analogy that we've seen also with patients with depression. You know, everybody knows that patients with depression um, have sleep problems. It's one of the diagnostic criteria. But we also know there's a lot of patients who have sleep disorders that are independent depression. And it's not uncommon for a patient whose depression gets better to still have a sleep problem, their initial sleep problem, and to start chasing that with extra medication and things in, in ways as if the depression weren't complete. So I think the assessment of the sexual dysfunction and where it comes into the clinical picture, is this a symptom of the drug treatment? Is it a symptom of a primary symptom of the depression? And I think that that's come up in other questions sometimes again is people say, well, you know, what about starting the patient right off on, you know, half, maybe 40 to 50 percent of patients with depression will present with sexual dysfunction. So what one really sees in terms of trying to follow it is, and I think this is, again, interesting about certain kinds of side effects. We see this in other conditions also. There are side effects of drugs that may also be symptoms of the treatment. Of, of the primary condition that you're treating. So the physician needs to be able to separate those out because on some of them, there are some patients with depression, when you treat a depression effectively, the sexual dysfunction that's associated with their depression actually gets better. And um, so the situation that you're uh, proposing, I think, becomes important in terms of assessment. You want to know, is the depression uh, getting better and the sexual dysfunction getting worse, or is the sexual dysfunction not changing or getting worse because the depression is not being treated adequately? In that case, with not use a PDE-5, raising the dose of the antidepressant. Right. right sure. um, and so um, that becomes an important issue for assessment. So again, the, the you know when we see this, I think it becomes the important of really being able to assess the patient in assessing it. Uh, what we find so often in practice, and you know, we see it even with with uh, uh, physicians, that people will for the first time hear about the sexual dysfunction because the patient comes in saying, "Oh, I saw this ad on television." I mean, we're seeing way too many of those ads anyway, and they sort of come in with their antidepressant sexual dysfunction. Um, the physician sort of caught because he didn't assess it to begin with. So we really don't know, is this sexual dysfunction that was part of depression? Was it a sexual dysfunction that they might have had to begin with that was independent of depression? Or is it now really a drug side effect? Uh, so, so that kind of inquiry, I think, becomes very, very important in the management of patients. It actually makes patients very 
comfortable when the physician is systematically asked about. And the patients are very good in discussing it. I, I think some of the interesting data that's come out on, on the sexual dysfunction assessments, and I think it's one of the reasons, you know, I, I frequently find, I mean, Personally, I find it bothersome, too. I can't watch a football game without seeing three or four of these commercials. Um, We don't like it. But one of the reasons that we see so much of it on television, I think, may in part be due to the fact that when the pharmaceutical companies have kind of looked at it, they found out that from patients that doctors weren't asking about it, that most of the starts, new starts of PDE5 inhibitors are initiated by patients, not by physicians. And it's generally the patient coming in saying, oh, you know, I, I, I may have this problem. I saw something on television. So um, they've gone there. And, and I think that becomes an important issue for us to, you know, sort of be on top of. I, th- I think the other issue that, I don't know, we have a little time, that, we, uh, that people complain about is, and this comes up with the management, is um, the managed care plans, a lot of them don't cover it. One of the reasons they don't cover it is they, you know, we get this rubric. Now, we have a lot of managed care here in New Mexico, so we've gotten to learn the lingo. Um, they'll say it's not medical necessity, it's a lifestyle. Um, what we were trying to do here, and I hope people can kind of take that away from this, if we're tre- using these drugs as antidotes for, for, for hypertension-induced sexual dysfunction or SSRI sexual, a whole other range of conditions that can cause that, that's a medical necessity issue. And then we could begin to also negotiate with the managed care companies on the issue of that one can show that this it, it's cost-effective to manage patients' side effects, that if we can manage patients' side effects and keep them from relapsing and having recurrences, that's the least expensive treatment. That's the best for our patients. So uh, so that would be that issue. Um, yeah, very helpful. Yeah. Um, uh, Pamela, anybody else in the queue? Not at this time, sir. George, when, um, so when I frequently, as I'm assuming others do as well, I mean, I give people instructions for titrating the dose up, starting right. at a lower dose or a half tablet and then moving to a full tablet. Um, and then uh, and then, what would you recommend in terms of the follow-up uh, uh, follow-up period? Three, three to four weeks, is that reasonable to look for, for the, the appropriate effect? Is that too short or is it too long? Of, of the antidepressant? Or exactly. the, the, yeah, well, uh, sort of, sort of for, for both. I mean, the antidepressant and the, uh, the sexual side of it. The, the antidepressant, uh, I mean, the, yeah, that, 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 that's a poor issue. Antidepressant in terms of, of, of starting it, I think one would like to see some sort of response in the, in the first three to four weeks. Uh, if there's uh, and certainly if there's no response by, let's say, week two or three, um, to increase the dose. If you get a partial response, that's a good marker to keep going. Um, if one doesn't get any kind of response, that's the point at which you might think about switching to something else. Or um, if a patient has a partial response and increasing the dose, augmentation because of that. So um, the depression issue is... And, and that's been out there because I think people are all relatively familiar with the with the sense that there's a latency period to people getting a response to antidepressants, um, and that may be anywhere from two to three weeks, and that pretty much holds. I think one should saying that it takes two to three weeks doesn't mean it all happens on the 21st day, but there should be something. 
but you really don't start to see your full effect about three weeks. Uh, with the PE5 inhibitors, on the other hand, for, for treating the side effect, there, I think one of the things, and we did that with the women, we went in with the same dose that we did for the men. We also did 50 milligrams uh, to start with of sildenafil. Um, so basically be the starting dose. And then after these drugs work, I mean, they either work or they don't pretty quickly, um, particularly in this kind of condition. And you, uh, then we would go to 100 uh, if 50 didn't work. We would use maybe a, a titration down if, let's say, nothing happened at 50. You got a good response at 100, but the patient was complaining of headaches. And, and that was one of the things also I think we might say that was pointed out in the paper. Um, there was a significant amount of headache that we would see as complaints from patients that tended to be really kind of a, it's a mild headache. Uh, we were also interested in that because, you know, a lot of migraine patients have depression, and we thought maybe the migraine patients would be. Migraine patients were really kind of interested. They very quickly saw that this was not like sort of one of their prodromes for their migraine attacks. They, this was more like an ice cream headache. <laughs> um, and it, it wore off and pretty much uh, Tylenol and things like that would, would, would fairly well control it. So the headache wasn't really a problem there in terms of that. But so our, our dosing there was 50 milligrams, then the next dose, and if that was a little too strong for the patient, then we titrate down 25. So those would be the, um, again, with the antidepressants, I think when we talk about titrating the doses in terms of titrating down, I think they're the, you know, it's the old rule of four half-lives to get a steady state. Uh, that one would say most of the antidepressants, except for fluoxetine, are relatively short-acting. So these are drugs that you can move pretty quickly on. Uh, fluoxetine was a drug that had a longer half-life, so it would take longer to come out in terms of titrating down. And titration should always be gradual because there have been significant reports of, of significant uh, withdrawal reactions to patients being taken off their antidepressants too quickly. So patients should just not stop them. Great. Very, very helpful. Uh, Pamela, anybody else in queue? No, sir. Great. Well, we are at the end of the hour, and uh, George, this has really been enlightening for me. It is a challenging uh, topic area, and I really appreciate both your article and you participating on the call with us today. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, you're more than welcome. Just and like I to enjoy remind, doing it. Yeah. Great. You're, you're, you're wonderful, and you know, you know uh, so many aspects of this work uh, that it's just a delight to listen to you think, think through these issues in detail. Just as a reminder, uh, the next author in the room call is Wednesday, October 15th at 2 o'clock Eastern Time, with the article being The Prevalence of Symptomatic Pelvic Floor Disorders in Women by Dr. Ingrid Nygaard and colleagues in the September 17th, 2008 issue of JAMA, uh, sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, author in the room, is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical care. Thanks to each of you for being a part of Arthur in the Room today, and good day. This concludes the Arthur in the Room conference call. Thank you all for joining. You may now disconnect. Great. George, you still there? I am here. Well, I, I learned a heck of a lot. It uh, didn't seem like we had a lot of calls out there. I was really surprised by that. I thought we would have uh, a heck of a lot. Uh didn't seem like we had a lot of calls out there. I was really surprised by that. I thought we would have... Uh, a heck of a lot. Uh, didn't seem like we had a lot of calls out there. I was really surprised by that. I thought we would have uh, a heck of a lot. Uh, didn't seem like we had a lot of calls out there. I was really surprised by that. I thought we would have. Uh
a heck of a lot. Uh, didn't seem like we had a lot of calls out there. I was really surprised by that. I thought we would have uh, a heck of a lot. Uh, didn't seem like.